now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In episode nine of our drug season, Just Science discusses the opioid epidemic with RTI International's Dr. Gary Zarkin and Dr. Jerry Ropero Miller. Solving the United States opioid epidemic riddled with unknowns and inconsistencies, starts with a holistic understanding of the pervading issues. It's not just the prevention and treatment associated with novel psychoactive substances, but surveillance, drug chemistry, identification, legislative policy and reform, and influential stakeholders acting in a concerted effort that will turn the tide of the nation's most devastating drug war front. Follow along with Just Science as we discuss the opioid epidemic from its history and origins to modern day strategies for prevention and treatment that capitalize on the use of existing data and policies to help hone in on a national solution. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. And welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm your host, John Morgan, with RTI's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. And I have with us two very, very distinguished scientists who work at RTI here. And we're going to really enjoy a conversation today about things involving opioids and novel psychoactive substances and some of the responses that we're going to try to develop, hopefully, as a, as a nation over the next few years to, uh, to deal with the uh, crises involved with the many, many deaths that are occurring in that area. So our first guest is Dr. Gary Zarkin, a distinguished fellow in the Behavioral Health and Criminal Justice Research Division at RTI. He's published extensively on cost-effectiveness and the benefit-cost of substance abuse interventions, currently leads the analytical support contract for SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, estimating the cost and cost-effectiveness of interventions on several projects funded by NIDA, the National Institute of Drug Abuse. Before coming to RTI, was an assistant professor of economics at Duke and research associate professor at Duke's Institute of Statistics and Decision Sciences. Welcome, Gary. Thank you very much. My pleasure to be here. And also our very own from the Center of Forensic Science, Dr. Jerry Rupero-Miller. This is a special day for me to get Jerry on the podcast. I've been trying to get Jerry on the podcast, and great to have her. She is a principal investigator and chief scientist of RTI International's Center for Forensic Science, board-certified forensic toxicologist, fellow with the American Board of Forensic Toxicology. She served as the deputy chief toxicologist at North Carolina's Office of Chief Medical Examiner before coming to RTI, and is on the board of directors for the ABFT and the American Academy of Forensic Sciences, where she's the secretary of the board. She also has served on leadership roles for the uh, OSAC, for Scientific Working Group on Forensic Toxicology, and is now the NIST-OSAC Chemistry Instrumental Analysis Scientific Area Committee, and lab inspector for ABFT and the National Laboratory Certification Program. Welcome, Jerry. Thank you, John. Good to be here. So we're going to talk about drugs today. So this is part of a, a series that we're having with Just Science, talking about a variety of issues having to do with drugs and forensic science. This 
particular podcast, I hope we're going to have a fairly broad view of what's going on with respect to issues, whether it be more broad policy issues or issues that get down into the weeds of what forensic scientists uh, and their role can be with respect to these issues. One of the things I wanted to kind of highlight first, but let's start with you, Jerry, is some of the things that we're doing now trying to do the census for medical examiners and coroners and other things in terms of data collection. Can you kind of lay that out in terms of where we're heading right now in, in data collection? In 2005, actually, the Bureau of Justice Statistics did the first census for medical examiner and coroner's offices collecting data from the year 2004, and it really was the first time ever that they had looked at these agencies of death investigation to kind of get a feel for operationally how they existed, um, from asking questions from their budget to, you know, what they were looking at as far as capacity and their caseloads. And that um, led to a very important report that still gets used quite extensively to look at the statistics behind the medical legal death investigation. But unlike many of the other censuses and surveys that BJS does, it hasn't really been done more consistently. So they did that one in 2005, and this would be the second time they're doing it. So they've waited more than 14 years to do it. Since that time, as you know, back then, we didn't really have what we call novel psychoactive substances, and we didn't have this opioids epidemic. So specific to my field in toxicology, it'd be a very interesting census because we just really didn't delve into those topics. Yeah. So some people look at where the bodies are buried. You're going to find out where they're autopsied, basically. Yeah, yeah. a little bit of that. <laughs> Jerry and Gary are actually heading up a working group within RTI on opioids. And, and Gary is really one of the leading voices at RTI working on these issues. Gary, tell us a little bit about the programs that you're involved in and then how the opioids working group grew out of that. We have a very deep history at RTI on opiate work from the forensic sciences, of course, from the lab sciences and developing work actually in other medication development, but looking specifically at other types of opiate products that we can uh, do some laboratory work on, to the social sciences from actually the National Survey of Drug Use and Health, which we're uh, collecting for SAMHSA, which is the largest household survey of the nation that collects a lot of information on drug and alcohol use nationally, to a lot of evaluations from SAMHSA, Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, evaluation for CDC on opiate addiction and interventions to reduce opiate addiction. So when you look at all of the work that we do at RTI, it's, again, very cross-cutting. Oftentimes, you know, people kind of put their head down and kind of look more in their own work and kind of a siloed mentality. So the idea is for us to back up and say, hey, listen, we have a lot of cross-collaboration that we can do. Let's get a group together, and we initially called it the Opioid Tiger Team, that's going to look at all of the work, evaluate what we're doing, look for areas that we can have better collaboration, and go out and get working groups to help enhance that collaboration. One of the problems around this whole thing is getting one's hands around the data and kind of the extent of the issue and how it manifests even on a city by city, county by county level. And that's been something that you've been looking at specifically, isn't it? In particular, yeah, we're looking at developing with one of our colleagues, Kevin Conway, a so-called fusion data center to look at ways that we can integrate all the information that's out there to help us identify where the opioid epidemic is going more intensely and how we might combat it. So in particular, we have issues 
on medical examiner and coroner data on mortality. We have issues on police data and stops, calls for service information, information on claims data, emergency department visits that might be detecting some of these things. But we don't have a way to fully integrate that. So at the city or county level or even state level, we don't have a very consolidated way to identify hotspots. Again, let me just go back and note, we can do that a couple years later and realize, oh, this area in particular was a really important and had a, a serious problem. But in real time, we don't have a way to really identify that. Part of it is just a methodology issue. The systems have been set up to be able to say, oh, well, in 2015, we were seeing this level of incidents and that kind of thing. And that's great, right. but it is not necessarily going to help with respect to being able to turn around with interventions very quickly. Exactly. And so what we'd like to do would be to figure out ways, one, to consolidate all these pieces of data, in particular a dashboard, so we can all have a particular view at one time and see what's going on, but also the update it and make it more real-time. So that's a challenge that we're trying to take on on the opioid tiger team. Now, Jerry, this is something that some folks in the medical examiner community are trying to do. I know uh, Bruce down in Florida, your mentor, has been involved with some of the things. Where do you think things need to go with respect to medical surveillance related to the medical examiner community and what's going on there? So there's many different ways that it's being looked into, and I think that there's a real you know, for lack of a better way of saying it, a paradigm shift with how we do surveillance when it comes to opioids. Because as you said, a lot of it has been, we look at it retrospectively, it's not really real time. And when you're looking at these novel psychoactive substances that essentially they can come out on the street or be sent from other countries and they come into use in the United States uh, one day, and really their existence here can only last like a month or two. And so in the past, when we've looked at doing the testing and everything, we wanted to make exactly sure that, you know, we've identified the exact drug we're looking at, and we didn't necessarily look at surveillance as far as public health and how to combat it and look at intervention. And I think that's one of the things we're seeing with opioids is needing to do that surveillance in such a way that we're looking at the individuals and the users and addiction and looking at things like prescription drug monitoring programs and bringing in these different clinical ways of tying into the forensic and the criminal justice types of surveillance systems. So I think that that's new. I think it's very innovative. And I think that, you know, the other thing that is important about it is it takes many different types of stakeholders to come together and be very proactive with communicating what they know and then trying to link it to these different surveillance systems that they haven't really participated and looked at in the past. I think that's interesting is that a lot of the deaths are actually involving multiple drugs, right? And that's being seen right now in some of the data coming out of medical examiners where they're doing a full suite of toxicology in drug-related deaths, right? Right. So, you know, obviously multi-drug overdoses, we're not just seeing that since the novel psychoactive yeah. substances. And, you know, the American population in the United States, we've had a problem with addiction and drug use for a very long time. And so when you have a death investigation, the medical examiners, and you're doing that toxicology testing, it's rare that you're going to find a single drug in any case. So you are looking at many drugs, and then you're trying to look at, you know, what is the case history? 
And how much did it contribute to that individual's death? Was it the primary cause of death? Was it indeed a toxicity or a poison for them? Or was it contributory? So medical examiners and coroners and the forensic toxicologists have their work cut out for them. It's not simple. Gary, how does that implicate some of the issues that you're trying to look at? Because it is a lot more complicated. It isn't just, you know, obviously fentanyl is very heavily involved with many of the deaths, but it isn't even that simple. Nobody is just picking up fentanyl one day, taking it and keeling over, right? It's a much more complex etiology that we're seeing here, right? Yeah, exactly. So the notion, again, of we don't have just an opioid epidemic, but we have a multi-drug epidemic. So the notion, as, as Jerry was saying, People are looking at the role of benzodiazepines, for example, and because there's less attention now on prescribing benzodiazepines, I think we're seeing more prescriptions on on benzodiazepines being written, and then people are combining that with opiate medication and dying from that. So it's a much more complicated issue than just opiates, so I'm glad that you raised that issue. Yeah, I mean, in pop culture, I don't know how much you've followed that, but there's uh, several of these uh, musicians who have really glorified benzodiazepines in particular, and I know a couple of them have actually died of some sort of overdose. I don't know whether, I don't, I don't have their toxicology data from their autopsy, but they, there's definitely been some very high-profile deaths in that case. And absolutely, and again, as you mentioned, fentanyl, which is also mixed in now with people that are injecting heroin, which is, again, approximately 50 times more potent than heroin. People may have that in their drugs. It's sometimes cut into their heroin. They don't realize it's in there, and they're going to die of a, of a fentanyl overdose. And so a very serious issue that we're trying to address, actually, at one of our projects that we funded recently, how people might respond to the notion of fentanyl test strips. So we can take people's drugs test it for fentanyl and see how they respond to the fact that if there's fentanyl in their drugs. So because it's much more risky with fentanyl mixed in, in fact, what we found is that people, in fact, reacted to it by saying, oh, that's that's really cause for concern. They might try a test injection of a small amount of drugs to make sure they're not going to overdose or be around other people that can help rescue them with naloxone or something else. So people do, in fact, respond to that risk. And we're trying to pursue that with NIH funding to see if we can do more on that area. So you've done a pilot study out in the field field. using the uh, fentanyl test strips. Yes. And again, as I say, people really were responsive to it. We think it may be a way to get it broadly disseminated and see if other people respond to it in like ways. That's an interesting way of trying to manage risk. We were talking a little bit the other day, and you were talking about some of the interventions now are not that dissimilar from some of the needle programs that were discussed with respect to heroin back in the 90s. Yeah, well, one I want to bring up is supervised injection facilities that one of our colleagues is working on, and uh, Alex Kral, who's been prominent in this field. And in fact, I just got a note from him last night that San Francisco has agreed to go ahead and fund the first uh, supervised injection facility in this country, which is a big deal. So the idea is that people will bring their drugs into a facility under supervision where people can rescue them if they have a drug overdose. Naloxone is used for drug overdose prevention if you have an opiate overdose. It's also usually attached to a drug treatment program so people can go in and maybe see if they want to go into treatment and then needle sharing to avoid that and so that they can do a swap of needles and they can be injecting under safer conditions. It's been controversial in this country, it's, but it's not been controversial other places. So in Europe, it's widely used. Vancouver, British Columbia also has a commitment to supervised injection facilities. So we're seeing now the notion here, at least in this country, the idea that it's a harm reduction type of strategy. Hopefully people will come in, they will definitely not die. We haven't had a death in a supervised injection facility that I know of anywhere. And so it can prevent overdoses, and at the same time, maybe people can be brought into treatment when they go in for their injection. 
Of course, the key to all this is being able to have a research basis for whatever you're doing, but also have an underlying core of uh, foundational data that you can use to see, you know, what changes over time and as different jurisdictions try this and others others don't, whatever the, the this might be, right? Sure. No, exactly. And again, as I say, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that this is a good way to go for a harm reduction intervention. And I'm really pleased that San Francisco is stepping up and, and doing that. Jerry, where do you see this going in terms of the, the whole idea of laying out the research foundation as well as the data foundation? Uh, you and some of the other folks here in CFS have been also involved in NIFLIS and some of the other ways to try to build some of this basic data. Where is that heading right now? What's going on? So I think research in medical legal death investigation has been, you know, largely there's not a whole lot of research being done for medical examiner coroner systems because the funding streams haven't really been there for them. But here recently, even before we started what we're calling the opioid epidemic, more and more of the federal funding has become available to them. And the research, not only in technology, but really just case resolution and how can they deal with better efficiency and capacity? Because if they don't come up with solutions to it, then they're not going to be able to continue to function. They're already starting to fail in their ability to handle the caseloads that are coming in because because it is a multi-drug situation and it's compounded with the um, severity of the opioids and the novel psychoactive substances that are so potent. I always go back home, right? And so for me, one of my homes is chemical biological warfare. <laughs> and so, and one of the things that you do, especially if there's a low, if you're trying to detect a low level event is medical surveillance is actually a quite an excellent way and it can actually get you detection a lot sooner than other kinds of media. You know, when people start to, to get more ibuprofen is the simple thing. Then all of a sudden that's a sign that something more is going on than it's something out of the ordinary. And medical surveillance has come a long way since I was working in CAMBIO 20 years ago. As I get older every day, uh, darn it. But I see this as kind of similar as trying to under, it's not the same kind of thing in terms of the data you're trying to do, but it's the same idea in terms of being able to use the powerful data that we have now to try to understand things a little bit better on a granular basis. Yeah, so I think some of the other ways that surveillance can be helpful and not necessarily based within the forensic science is the fact that with these um, multi-drug users and situations, you have a lot of comorbidity going on and you have other ailments that they're suffering because of the risks they're taking with their drug use. And so being able to follow those kind of comorbidity patterns makes us better adept to deal with them clinically. Um, another way that surveillance can be helpful, as you said, is when you can see the patterns of the drugs themselves and what's coming out. So one of the things I know that we are looking into in toxicology is not just knowing the actual substance that is in what the drug user is taking, but the adulterants that could be used, not only the adulterants that are used for packaging them and, and that necessarily, but other drugs are given in combination for a better, you know, whether it's for a better high or whether it's for, you know, making the drug that's being made by, you know, 
the uh, illicit drug manufacturers to make it stretch more. But looking at those adulterant patterns can tell us a lot too. So. So the three of us, Gary, Jerry, and I, were very fortunate recently. We were able to visit with some of the professional scientific staff of the Office of National Drug Control Policy, and we talked about this issue of the dashboards and some of the vision about that. Gary, you mentioned the dashboards earlier. Can you lay out a little bit more detail, kind of the vision of how the dashboards would work? And I know there's some folks doing it. I think we've done some work here in North Carolina ourselves, right? Well, we've definitely done it in North Carolina. It's a good point. So what we've done, for example, and I'll build up to what we can keep adding to it, is so we're looking at social indicators of that would predict drug use in each of the 100 counties in North Carolina. So we're looking at drug use prevalence, criminal justice outcomes, and that kind of thing, and being able to get that for every county in the state. We did actually talk to a county yesterday. They haven't seen the, these indicators, so I don't know if it's gotten disseminated to them yet, but we know that that's in the works, and that's been funded by SAMHSA to, to do this, actually, again, specifically in North Carolina. And so the idea would be, again, for what we've done in North Carolina, would be able to try to do that in real time. So right now, again, as I said earlier, we're a couple years behind in looking at those data. They really can't be used for surveillance. So we can certainly look at medical surveillance issue from test certificates. But if we want to look at broader outcomes, we're very limited, especially if we want to look at things in real time. So the idea would be, if we could, to take data from across, really, in some sense, the federal government, from DHHS, DOJ, CDC, et cetera, and be able to have a way, this would be the dream, again, I think it's very difficult in theory, not in theory, but actually to make this happen in, in real time, but in, in a short amount of time, to get the federal agencies to talk to each other, agree to share data in such a way that we can combine that data in a real-time dashboard. So the dashboard would literally be, if you're looking at things, you know, literally like a dashboard, I mean, you're looking at a screen, and you can see how deaths are looking at either regionally by state, nationally, you can have some kind of indicator of that. You can look at criminal justice outcomes. You can look at health outcomes, ED visits, et cetera. You have it all on one screen. You can be able to go into different kind of areas and figure out what's going on and on trends. And very quickly, if you need more police action or more medical intervention, you can identify those areas much more quickly. Now, you have a background in economics, and so I'm going to challenge you. And what I look at this as is, is a performance indicator. Uh, and a lot of the police who listen to the podcast would appreciate that because they're used to CompStat and, and other kinds of ways of tying what they're doing even on a block-by-block -block basis to performance measures that allow them to say, all right, well, what I'm doing today is working or what I'm doing today isn't working, and here's what I need to do to respond to, to the data that's coming at me right now. And so in some ways, this is another way of looking at it, another way of doing performance measures for a broader public health intervention scheme. Correct. And actually, since you brought up police, I mean, I did want to mention that we have a calls for service tool that we're now getting out into the market that actually is taking the data from calls for service, 911 calls specifically for police, and using it to be able to measure how the police are doing in terms of response time and how they're allocating their time. And again, we're adding an opioid field to that so we can judge where opiate activity is occurring and be able to target that more clearly. The other thing when you mention police that's really important with police in many jurisdictions carrying naloxone with them, police officers are now transforming into more public health officers. They have a very important role now as they come upon a scene where people are overdosing and they have an ability to intervene and save people with naloxone. So it's really changing policing now because of the epidemic. 
Jerry, one of the things that we're also seeing out there, and that's really interesting because it, it, I have enormous respect for police because they're the one public servant. It's like there is no job description, <laughs> right? But uh, I know a lot of police right now, the other thing that they're saying is, yes, we have this really huge crisis with opioids and things like that and, any, and all the novel psychoactives really. And we're also being put into a very difficult situation because there's a broad legalization for marijuana out there as well. And, you know, what is the role for police? It's, it's, it's very, very difficult for them to judge this. Now, from a forensic science perspective, you know, it really hasn't changed much, I guess, or has it? It hasn't changed as far as our purpose and what we're doing, but it really has challenged the system as far as how we have to do it. Because many times... Because these novel psychoactive substances are so potent, finding them and the, being able to detect them in the body is going to be at such a very low concentration. So our technologies had to become better and more sensitive. And so, you know, nowadays we're using, you know, high resolution mass spectrometry where, you know, seven, eight, ten years ago, that wasn't even thought of. You know, we were still back with using GCMS and we had a, a longer time to be able to, you know, do the screening testing that we had to do and then identify it and confirm it and quantitate it. We're still doing that whole process, but the technology that we're using is different and much more sensitive. And with that, it leads to a lot more interpretation because you're finding so much more that you're having to really look at it and put it together. It's kind of like a puzzle that you're looking at the big picture of what each piece can mean to that investigation. I mean, a lot of the, the surveillance that Gary wants to try to take advantage of is also even one step ahead of that. It's just even the controlled substances, the material that would be seized is very difficult to try to do analysis on anymore because of the, especially when you get into fentanyl analogs, isn't that right? Right. Just because of the safety of it, um, that's certainly with the first responders has been brought to the forefront in the media of they're going on scene, they don't know what they're finding, and then how do they deal with it, you know, the safety issue of making sure that we're protecting our first responders and how they're doing the evidence collection and then getting it to the laboratories for testing. So that's been an issue. And then knowing exactly what they are collecting as far as how to deal with it. And I know we talked a little bit about, you know, the fact that you have this synthetic uh, legalization of marijuana and, you know, marijuana being brought into the scenes of these in addition to the more harsh drugs. And with these being brought into the scene, it makes it very different in how they go about collecting the evidence and then getting it to the laboratories. I mean, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, are we? do you think we're going to continue to see new fentanyl analogs, new synthetic marijuana, or do you think that uh, more legalized marijuana, do you have any, any clue as to what's going to happen next? My experience has always been, both looking at it when I was uh, training as a student, and then when I was at the medical examiner's office, and now that I'm a researcher, that drug use is very cyclic and you know you have your pattern of what's the most popular now and then that drug may go down in its use and another pops up 
And as far as it really is a cat and mouse game for us, as soon as we are able to analyze and control for one drug, then there's an illicit new drug that's coming out and being put on the market. So there's that constant battle with us trying to identify the newest drug, then that gets controlled. And then the newer drugs are already out on the market and it's taking us time to bring ourselves up to speed so that we can identify those because it's not just a matter of it pops up in our screen and we see that new peak and it's easy to identify. We really do, we have to validate our methods and make sure that the methods are good to be able to correctly identify and make that call. So what we are seeing is always going to be changing and we'll always be doing that pattern. You know, I can't help as an individual in the society to hope that it's not doomed. I think we are coming up with better solutions and and we are, you know, learning how to change how we've done things in the past to be more productive at what we do. But I think that it will continue. We're just going to be different. Well, yeah, I mean, I remember powder cocaine coming and going, crack, of course, uh, as well, really peaked and then went very much lower. Methamphetamine in the 2000s has really uh, come and gone to some extent, not completely, but it's certainly not as, not as much as crack, but each one was a little bit different from the other. Gary, I mean, what do you think? Why did we have this problem now? Let me actually, I want to kind of come back around to a, a question you, you posed a little earlier, because Jerry did a great job talking about synthetics and analogs, which uh, are really a challenge, as you said, to be able to detect them. But I want to go back to uh, marijuana, cannabis legalization and decriminalization. Sure. So as you know, more than half the country has some kind of access to legal marijuana, whether it's medical or retail. Of course, California just came online to have legalization of, of marijuana. And other states are setting up to be either legalized or decriminalized. And remember, we don't have to go to full legalization. We could have decriminalization. I think there's other parts of the country that are worried about. Is that a good idea? Is that a gateway drug, et cetera? But the important point, it seems to me, for the opiate epidemic is it may be that marijuana cannabis is uh, something that's a harm reduction that can eliminate or reduce the amount of opiates and that people can maybe switch to cannabis as a way to medicate their pain and reduce their dependence on RX opiates and in heroin and, and other opiates. Now, do we have a research basis to say that? Well, one of the challenges we have, there's some evidence. And again, I think one of our challenges we have, as you know, marijuana is still a Schedule One drug. It's difficult to do a lot of research with marijuana. And so there are probably more stylized stories out there. And there are oftentimes people are looking at the correlation between states legalizing marijuana and then looking at what happens to overdose deaths and finding a negative correlation. So it's not a causal kind of thing. I think we're having just sort of top of the trees kind of analyses at this point. But it's certainly suggestive that there may be a link and that we probably have to do a little more work on that. Now, that's very interesting. Fentanyl has been around a while, and it isn't like carfentanil is the first fentanyl analog ever. I mean, really, is there a difference because of the chemistry? Chemistry is getting better. Yeah. (laughs) But is it that much different now than it was five years ago? No, I mean, even the opioid epidemic, you know, I've been removed from the medical examiner's office as actually working in the medical examiner's office 13 years now. But even, you know, 13 years ago here in North Carolina, when I you know, we were challenged with our big influx of oxycodone and then methadone. And so 
We've even seen, you know, the trends of the opioids, which are prescription drugs that are not a matter of being illicitly manufactured fentanyl, that there's been that movement from one of the opioids to another. And there's certainly been that shift within the treatment of individuals with pain as far as the opioids being used for that and how often they're being used. And, you know, that wasn't addressed as early as maybe it could have been. Um, But there's definitely been changes in the way we are treating people with pain and maybe thinking about what should be the first line treatment for pain of this symptomology or this disease versus, you know, maybe a secondary treatment or so on. So I think there's definitely pause and change in medical treatment. And then just in the forensics field, I don't think the opioids are new. The cyclic past, in my experience, has been that there's always been high opioids use, at least in North Carolina. So Gary, we did an opioid webinar series, and we'll make sure to, to link from it, uh, from this podcast page, to that opioid webinar series. And we really speculate a little bit on this and some of those webinars about the advent of black tar heroin, as well as the prescription, a lot of uh, hydrocodone and things like that, that were supposed to be slow release and less right. addictive, but didn't turn out that way. I mean, do you think that there's some nexus there or what is your speculation or do we have knowledge now in this area? Well, I want to go back to the question of why now, but I think, again, as you know, many folks in the field, and actually uh, Jerry was just alluding to it, the epidemic has been going on for quite a while. Really, oxycodone came on and I think that really made a big impact in the late 90s, early 2000s. The number of deaths have been steadily rising over time. And I think it's just really in the last several years that the deaths have been so large that people said, whoa, wait a minute, this is really unbelievable and we can't ignore it. Plus, I think it's hitting a lot more of middle America where people's kids are now getting exposed to opiate overdoses and dying. And I think that's had a big impact. So I think it's been building for a while. And I think it's now at a crisis point, obviously, where we have to have some real uh, dynamic and quick interventions. And one of the challenges, again, picking up another comment that Jerry's making, the ups and downs, by the time we get lined up and all of our ducks in a row for the opiate epidemic, there's going to be another epidemic. And whether that's benzos and opiates or benzos by himself or people talk about opiates and methamphetamine, what's the next thing that's going to come up? So what we have to be doing is really probably doing a better job of figuring out the emerging stages of these, these epidemics and not being so reactive years later and try to be more proactive. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I know uh, is happening in Europe along that line is they're looking at regulation by functional group of the drug as opposed to the drug itself, which we do not do here in the United States. And that's part of being kind of ahead of the curve and understanding the chemistry. But it's also, as you've kind of outlined, trying to focus more on harm reduction, right? It's Do we have enough surveillance in place to know where the deaths are occurring, where the most dangerous kinds of problems are? Sure. You're talking about certainly in the U.S., we have a lot of states that have epidemics of this, you know, Appalachia, North Carolina, Vermont, the Northeast, and they've been dealing with this for for a number of years and coming up with innovative solutions and trying to get a handle on it. One of the ways to intervene are harm reduction interventions, uh, maybe needle exchange, uh, supervised injection facilities, getting people more into treatment. One of the major reasons why we still have a problem here is that we're not getting very many people into treatment. And even if we get people into treatment, they're not necessarily getting medical-assisted treatment, which is really the gold standard of what they should be getting. And so we're getting people, if they get it, 
and relatively ineffective treatment. Plus, we have to work on prevention. There's so many ways that we can, certain policies, but we're really not implementing them in a, in a rapid cycle. You've done some research in methadone, and I mean, I'm unschooled in the area. What I think I know is that methadone treatment is at least a mixed bag in terms of effectiveness. I think actually, again, my understanding of the literature on methadone is pretty good. Which is way good. better than yeah. mine. Yeah, no, so I think it's pretty ahead, effective. Go for it. <laughs> so again, for many years, we just had methadone really for opiate addiction. And over time, we've had other opiate medications out there, Suboxone, Naltrexone, injectable Naltrexone, Vivitrol. And so now actually we have more drugs that are out there that can help treat opiate addiction that are uh, available. For many years, again, methadone was only available in methadone clinics. Many people may not want to go to a methadone clinic. So they've had waivers where primary care physicians, the medication waiver, can go ahead and prescribe uh, opiates out of their office. And so that's had a big impact. But we, again, even that is, is lagging. We're not getting as many physicians signing up for that. And so that's also been another barrier. So again, it's, it's challenging. And uh, just explore this a little bit more, because we haven't really talked much about drug treatment during the podcast series. This is a rare opportunity. Again, one of my perceptions is, is that we'll never get the capacity to deal with this from a treatment perspective using traditional methods, that drug treatment facilities in general, just by their nature, have a tendency to have difficulties. And by having different kinds of modes of delivery of treatment, and uh, either through primary care or other things, that's the only way we're going to be able to do it economically, but also effectively. Well, we have a lot of challenges. I think there's stigma associated with going to treatment, so that keeps people away. I think we have capacity issues. We have quality issues of treatment. Again, as I said, are people getting medication-assisted treatment? And we have no way to compare treatment programs. So people go into a treatment program, they don't know what they're going to get. And one of my colleagues, Tammy Mark, is looking at some opportunities to look at provider report cards so people can compare different treatment programs and say, ah, this one has medication. They've had very good outcomes and a good success rate. I want to go there. So I think all those things have to happen to improve the treatment system. If you were you know, in charge, as it were, of the ONDCP, right. what would you recommend? What do you think are the main pillars of an effective intervention at this point in time would be? Well, again, I would probably focus on treatment access is really critical. Many people that have an opiate problem are on Medicaid. Medicaid, as you know, is a state federal plan. Many states haven't expanded Medicaid, so many people can't get access to treatment. Mm-hmm. And it's a shame, right? So people are dying. They have no access to treatment. So getting increasing access to treatment would be really important. Some private insurers have limits on what they're going to do for treatment as well. So maybe we need to waive some of those limitations on treatment. We're supposed to have equality between physical health and behavioral health. Sometimes that's happening. Sometimes that's not really happening. So we need to really improve treatment access incredibly. And then prevention. We need to really work with youths, you know, screening for drugs, either in schools or in in health facilities. Talk to people about what's going on, ask them if they're taking drugs and get them to not take the drugs and, you know, identify the dangers of, of opiates and other drugs. Prevention and treatment are really, you know, in my mind, the main levers there. Decriminalization of marijuana can have some implications too as well. So I think that's something to keep an eye on. So, Jerry, what are your top three in terms of what you'd like to see us try to do better? Okay, I'm going to do a plug back. Just You had said something about uh, Europe was looking at scheduling our drug based on functionality, and DEA has recently 
stated that they will be looking at scheduling of fentanyl based on core structure. So even in the oh. United States, we're moving in a positive direction to allow for yeah. more, mm-hmm. a better way or a faster way for us to deal with the criminal justice impact of these drugs of abuse. So just wanted to say that. But we have talked about surveillance, so I won't you know go into a lot. But I do think our ability to look at surveillance, drug surveillance and intelligence in a different way than what we've been doing in the past where we have been doing surveillance almost in a silo. So we look at surveillance for clinical reasons or the medical reasons, and we look at surveillance for criminal justice, or we look at surveillance as far as diversion control. And we just have looked at it, and CDC looks at it for public health. But we've always kind of looked at it in these different arenas. And I think trying to bring it all together will make us much more proactive in taking that data and not having to wait a year or two or even more to realize that we don't want to get to a stage that we're calling something an epidemic. We want to, you Mm -hmm. know, kind of preclude that. So I think surveillance is important. I'm always going to say that analytical improvements and enhancements and technology, how to build a better mousetrap, um, at least in our field, is always going to be something that we're striving for uh, to help us uh, do what we do even better. And I think uh, one thing that uh, working with the um, Center of Excellence and some of the other programs that I've worked on is just we as individuals being more communicative and talking amongst us because you can't do science in a vacuum or not looking at, okay, I only do forensic science, so I need to know you know, what's going on in the field of forensic science. I really do need to, as a scientist, go beyond my comfort zone and look into other areas of science and how they can be applicable or how they can be pulled into forensic science. So those would be my three off the top of my head. Gary, you get the final word. What's your final word here? Well, I I do want to agree with Jerry. Again, that was a theme I did mention earlier, the the notion of of data integration, being smarter about the data. And I like the idea of the notion of we have these ups and downs, just like the stock market, which is going up and down now. So there are uh, times when different drugs are going to come up and, and others are going to come down. So... You know, I think we have to have all hands on deck. I don't think we have that yet at the federal government level, and the states are really primed to do it. So I think we need a little more leadership and hopefully more funding from Washington to, uh, to help address the epidemic. You can see why we had these two folks, Dr. Gary Zarkin and Dr. Jerry Rupera-Miller. Thank you both for being on Just Science today. Thanks, John. Thanks. Opinions or points of view expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.